It's good to be back with you uh, this week. It uh, feels a little, it feels good, but a little strange because I'm, I'm not used to seeing you so much. If you don't know, I'm Pastor Will, the pastor of Hope Church of the Nazarene here in Battle Creek, and uh, we're, we're partnering with your church to, uh, Pastor Tanner and I, to switch pulpits uh, every other week and uh, just allow you, one, to hear someone different, and also for you to get to know me a little better, for the congregation at Hope especially to get to know Pastor Tanner a little bit better. And uh, some of you have been saying for over a year now, when are we going to meet your wife? When are we going to meet your wife? I brought her today. <laughs> Amy's here with me today. Yeah. Well, it's a strange transition from that. But I, I'm going to pick on the church a little bit this morning. And, and I think I can do that because I honestly can say that I love Jesus' church. I, I really do love Jesus' church. I believe that Jesus doesn't have plans A, B, and C. He has plan A, and plan A is to continue the redemption and restoration of the world through his spirit-filled people who are the church. And so I, I love the church. I believe that Jesus uses the church. And part of love is to recognize when things are maybe a little bit unhealthy, so that in recognizing that, we can bring about some health. And, and I remember growing up hearing in church that you shouldn't go certain places, you shouldn't be around certain people, because some places are inherently sinful, and some people are really bad influences. And we don't want to be sinful, we don't want to be bad, uh, we don't want the impure to rub off on us, so we stay away from those places and, and those people. Anyone else hear that message a lot? And to be fair, there is some wisdom in that message. Uh, I mean, if you're a, a recovering addict, it probably makes sense for you to not hang around those same people that you were in those destructive patterns of life with, or, or at least not for a time to be around them. But still, the message of holiness has been portrayed as one of remaining clean or, or pure. And that has meant that we don't go places where our purity may be called into question. And we certainly don't associate with people of bad reputations. Somehow, holiness has come to mean being safe and being seen as nice. And if I may... Uh, some sort of suburban nuclear family that has everything together and is on the path of, of social upward mobility, uh, that holiness ha has been seen as something to be maintained or, or sequestering ourselves into safe spaces and bubbles and among, with like-minded people, and it's been treated as this fragile vessel that we have to keep nice and shiny and we need to protect it at all costs. We treat holiness like it's something to be afraid of losing rather than understanding that it is a gift from God because it, is, it comes from having the Holy Spirit, which is the gift of salvation. You receive the Holy Spirit when you first believe, and it's all gift, folks. It's all gift. And it's a gift to be used, not a gift that you put in a cabinet and keep it safe or, or, or put in a box with all kinds of padding around it for a, a time to be determined. The gift of holiness is the power of God on display in us and through us. The gift of holiness is the gift of love. Love even for those who are far different than us. It's the gift of love 
that leads us to places that we tend to believe God wouldn't dare go. And because I'm thinking, actually I know, not just thinking, I know, that holiness wins out over sin, I'm thinking that the Holy One of God, Jesus come to uh, to redeem and restore all of creation through His life-giving presence, I'm thinking that we don't need to be afraid. And I'm thinking that, in fact, our scripture today tells us the story of Jesus being anything but careful when it comes to guarding his holiness, his purity. Our scripture today shows us that Jesus comes to reorder creation rather than being tainted or mastered by powers and principalities of darkness. Jesus himself has mastery over them. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, It'll be on the screens for us as well. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Mark, in, in his gospel, he doesn't tell us why Jesus went across this lake or or sea. Uh, He doesn't tell us why, but he does give us some important details that tell us just what it is Jesus has entered into. Jesus went right in to the most unclean situation that there could have been. This is Gentile territory. It's a Gentile region, and most Jews understood Gentiles to live in a state of perpetual or continually ongoing uncleanness. And so for Jesus to go to Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory, would have been Jesus entering into unclean 
territory. Uh, Jews took this so seriously that they actually weren't supposed to go into a Gentile's home. Because a Gentile's home was supposed to be unclean. And that didn't mean that they didn't like sweep the dust or, or, or do the dishes. It, it meant that they had things like idols in their home. Little statues that they would worship and bow down to. And the Gentile people also didn't go through the same purification rites and rituals that Jewish people did. So for a Jew, they weren't supposed to go into the home of a Gentile. And here Jesus is entering into perpetually unclean territory. Gerasa or Gerasia, or depends on which which of the... the uh, Gospels you read, but Jesus is undoubtedly in Gentile, unclean territory. And Jesus doesn't seem to, to hold back. He, he just goes right into it. And to make matters worse, uh, even more precarious for Jesus and his Jewish disciples, the very first thing that they encounter, the very first thing they encounter when they get to the Gentile, unclean territory is... A man with an impure spirit. It just keeps getting worse and worse. First they're in in Gentile unclean territory. Now there is a man running towards them who has an impure spirit. Again, this is unclean. Unclean. I mean, no sooner does Jesus step out of the boat on Gentile territory than he's confronted by this man with an impure spirit. And at this point, I want to be clear, the, the scripture doesn't say this. But I'm just imagining that the disciples, who are good Jewish disciples, that are with Jesus, they're thinking, we need to leave. (laughs) We, We should not be here. Jesus, we shouldn't be here. We really should not be here. Uh, And and I'm not so sure that we really get a a full understanding of what's going on here. Uh, Or we place ourselves there, not... As they step out of the boat, it's not like some benign, uh, nice man is coming towards them. No. This is like a crazy man. This is a man who is out of his right mind, who, as we'll find out, is naked, has cuts all over himself. He moans and screams, and this is who's running towards them. If I'm a disciple, I'm back in the boat, and I'm rowing fast. We got to get out of here. We shouldn't be here. And not only that, but they've been taught. Uh, Rabbis and teachers of the law would teach them, don't go to Gentile territory. Don't have anything to do with the Gentiles because they are continually, perpetually unclean. And so the disciples have to be thinking, this is not good. This is not good. We should get out of here. Uh, It's almost the opposite of when Uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are on the mountaintop, and Moses and Elijah show up, and Peter says, oh, it's good for us to be here. We should build three shelters. I'm imagining at this point, he's saying, it is not good for us to be here. We need to get back in that boat and go to the other side. Yet here they are. Here they are. I I, I mean, are you starting to get a picture of how unclean, how, how, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for here, uh, disruptive or, or, or contrary to what they felt they should have been doing, how, how this situation is playing out. It's so different. And, I mean, they're in Gentile territory. There's a man with an impure spirit. And like any good infomercial, but wait, there's more. Tombs. This man with an impure spirit lives among and in the tombs. Uh, that's 
the cemetery. He lives in the cemetery. And, and, and for Jewish people, death is like the most unclean thing. And actually, it is death that makes everything else impure. And I think a lot of times when we read in the scriptures that they were impure or they were made impure, we read sinful. Sometimes that is the case, but a lot of the time that's not actually what it's saying. It's not saying they were sinful. It's saying that there was some element of death at work that's rendering them impure. And so uh, the, the passage really after our passage today is this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She would have been impure or unclean, not because she'd been sinful, but because blood had been leaving her body. And then the, the Jewish understanding of things, bodily fluids contained life. And so if the fluids are leaving you, life is leaving you, and you are marked by death. When they talk about leprosy, it's not just like uh, the, the, the disease leprosy. It could be psori- it could have had psoriasis or just dry skin that was flaking off. And, and they would see that as your, your skin sloughing off the body is like you were like a walking corpse because your body is shedding itself, and so you're unclean or, or impure. And... and and so there, there's all these things going on, and death is the overarching element uh, of impurity or uncleanness. And so here is this man with an impure spirit living amongst the dead. It, it'd be as if death had been all over him. And, and he's running towards Jesus and the disciples. And, and he, he kneels down before them. I mean, death was such a big deal that they weren't, they weren't really supposed to touch dead things. And that's not to say they couldn't have funerals, but after you, you buried someone who was dead, if you were a part of that, you had to go through a purification ritual. And, and even that some of the Jewish community went so far as to say that if your shadow cast over a funeral procession, you were unclean. And so you had to be ritually purified. Again, not sinful, unless you didn't get go through the purification ritual. And so here's this man, marked by death, death covering him because he's living in the tombs and among, amongst the dead. And, and he's coming towards Jesus. And if he touches Jesus, then Jesus would be unclean. If he touches the disciples, the, the disciples would be marked as unclean. And, and he, he comes before them. They're in Gentile territory, a man with an impure spirit. He's living among the dead. And he's also self-destructive. He, he's cutting himself. And again, that means blood is leaving the body. More impurity. I mean, this just keeps getting uh, more and more and more. That's where they are. And then, as if that weren't enough, it turns out he doesn't have one impure spirit. He has a legion of demons that have possessed him. Not just one, but a legion. Many, many. I'm thinking the disciples, if they were thinking what I'm thinking they were thinking, would be right. We need to get out of here. We should not be here. I had a professor last semester in seminary, and in a book he wrote, he says this about the, the man who has the impure spirit or spirits. He says, this is a human being out of control. Uh, exponentially unclean and enslaved to chaotic forces that are slowly forcing him to destroy himself. He's a walking exhibition of chaos itself, 
of creation disordered by impurity, death, and the demonic. Uh, This man is the embodiment of all that is wrong in the world. This man is the embodiment of all the destructive forces in the world, all the chaotic forces, all the sinful forces that, that have come to bear upon the world. This man embodies them all in a microcosm. And we find out that as Jesus has made his way across the lake and steps out into this completely impure, uh, unholy situation, that he's actually entering right into a battle. He's entering into a battle. Uh, Forces of chaos and destruction are at work. And right before the passage we read in chapter 5, the end of chapter 4, we, we find that Jesus has already been engaging in this battle. As they're making their way across this lake, uh, they're in the boat, the disciples, I'm assuming, are rowing, and they're, they're headed to this Gentile territory, and a storm kicks up. Waves are, are beating against the boat, and the disciples are losing their minds. This is not good. Uh, and, and Jesus is asleep which is interesting, but Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and, and Jesus says to them, what, he says to the wind and to the waves, be quiet, be still, and they obey. They obey. And, and the disciples, they're like, what's going on, Jesus? Why are you afraid? Do you still not have faith? And then they ask themselves a really important question. Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And to give us a better understanding of what this battle on the sea is, in ancient Jewish cosmology, which is the way they understood the world to be formed and created, they understood the sea or bodies of water as very tumultuous areas, very scary places to be. Even if you were a fisherman, you knew that this was a, a, a scary profession because at any point, especially on the Sea of Galilee, at any point, a storm could come up and, and sink you. We have scuba gear, we have submarines, we have like, robots and, and cameras that can go way, way down into the depths of the ocean. Like, we don't know everything that's down there, but we have a pretty good understanding of what's at the bottom of the sea, lake, ocean. They had none of that. And so for them, it was this unknown space, a scary space that if you sunk down to the bottom, they thought it was the opening to the realm of the dead or or Sheol. And and the sea was was supposed to have like, there's Hebrew words, tohu and bohu. And they're like twins of destruction, chaos and disorder. And so when you're on the sea and the wind and the waves whip up, it's tohu, it's bohu, it's, it's chaos, it's destruction coming up against you. And rather than being sunk or overcome, Jesus says, be quiet, be still. And chaos and disorder, these twins of destruction, are put back in their proper place. Quieted. Stilled. And so as Jesus is on his way to this impure, unclean situation, it's like these forces of destruction knew he was coming and they tried to prevent him from getting there. But rather than being prevented, Jesus puts things as they ought to be, and goes right into the stronghold of these powers and forces, principalities of darkness. Jesus goes right into it and engages in this battle to continue this battle language. Who does he meet? 
He meets this man with an impure spirit, and when he asks, what is your name? The, the impure spirit turns out to be spirits who say, we are legion. We are legion. And legion was a, a Roman term for, for forces within their army. Legion was a, a group of soldiers which numbered, uh, our best guess is like 6,000. Uh, and, and just to be clear, and as Mark writes his gospel, he doesn't care that much about numbers lining up perfectly. He's telling a bigger story. And so for him, he's not saying that the name Legion means that there were 6,000 demons in, in this man. What he's saying is there were many, 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 many demons in this man. And Jesus ha- has come up against them. Jesus confronted uh, by the, these forces of destruction and chaos and disorder. They, they come up against Jesus. And rather than commanding Jesus... They fall before him. And he has command over them. Jesus orders the demons. And in the version I read, it sounds like really tame. Like Jesus gave them permission to enter into the pigs. Or he just, it's almost like Jesus just let it happen. But the language there is a lot stronger. It's like Jesus ordered them. He's giving military commands. He orders them. To really enter into exactly what they asked for. Uh, But he gives them orders. Jesus is in charge here. Make no mistake about it. And and so these demons, this legion, many, many demons, they enter into this herd of about 2,000 pigs. And they rush headlong down the the slope into the water. And and I I, I told my congregation, I told Amy on the way over here, I, I just love, I love this story. Because there's so much irony, there's so many little things going on, and you could read this a hundred times and still learn more. And, and as these demons beg not to be destroyed, Jesus grants their request to be cast into this herd of pigs. And I, I told you a lot, about, a lot about this unclean situation. Gentile territory, impure spirit, turns out legion of impure spirits. And the man who, this man who lives among the tombs, death is all around him and on him. And he cuts himself, even more markings of death. And pigs. Pigs. Personally, I really like bacon. But Jewish people, pigs were a big no-no. They were unclean, like the most unclean animal there was. And... And so here are these impure, unclean spirits being asked to be cast into these impure, unclean pigs. And then they've chosen their own destruction. The herd of pigs go down the hill, steep hill, into the water where they are drowned. And what was the water? Chaos and disorder. And at the bottom of it, the realm of the dead. Where have these impure spirits gone, these demons gone? Right back to where they belong. Jesus is setting things right. He's reordering creation. And, and just a, another really, really cool, I don't know if it's an aside, but a, another really cool tangent. Do you remember when, when God sends Moses to Egypt and, and he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go? And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, God, God says, let my people go. No, let my people go. No, There's, I'm giving you like the briefest version possible. But that happens again and again. And then eventually Pharaoh is just sick and tired of all the plagues. He's lost his, his firstborn son. And he says, just go. 
Get out of here. And so Moses leads God's people, and they come up to the sea. Uh Uh-oh. How are we going to get across the sea, this place of chaos and disorder? And we don't know what's at the bottom, and it's scary. How are we going to get across? And what does God do? (sighs) Separates the water. And they walk across, not on scary ground, but on dry land. And then we find out that Pharaoh has a change of mind. Because Pharaoh has grown used to systems of oppression and building up his economy on the backs of slaves and exploiting their labor and being in charge and powerful. And so Pharaoh says, this isn't good. How are we going to subsist without this labor? And so he sends his army after them and they rush headlong into the, what is at that point, dry ground and the sea swallows them up. There's some parallels here that systems and forces which oppress and destroy end up being swallowed up and put back where they're supposed to be as God is about this recreating and reordering of all things, setting things right. I think that's pretty cool. I don't know if cool is the right word to use there, but not very pastoral. We're seeing... Hear how powerful the opposition to Jesus is. This is war. This is battle. And Jesus enters the most impure situations, the very stronghold of the enemy, and he not only remains holy himself, but his holiness restores individuals and communities out of the chaos and destruction that they've been living in, into wholeness through Christ. Disciples, again, had to be thinking, we have to go. This isn't good. We're going to become impure and unclean. But Jesus, rather than becoming impure and unclean himself, his holiness comes to bear on this situation. And he restores this man to his right mind. Restores him back to community. And, and I, th- I think we miss this as well. But it's actually a restorative work for the community who has cast this man out of community. That they might seek forgiveness. That they might welcome this man back in amongst themselves. That Jesus is restoring them back to, back to God, back into relationship with one another. And, and, and Jesus, this man, knowing full well what God has done for him, God in the flesh, Jesus restoring him to his right mind, uh, he says, let, let me follow you. He begs Jesus, let me follow you. And, and, and see the contrast here. The, the legion of demons kneel before Jesus and beg not to be destroyed. And now this man in his right mind is begging to follow begging to follow. And Jesus says to him, go home. Go home to your, and tell, to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you how mu- and how he has had mercy on you. What Jesus is saying is, go be a part of the community once again and help others to be released from this chaos and disorder, these destructive forces that bound you. Help others To see just how much God can do for them. Just how much God can reorder their lives. Just how much God can bring about, dare we say, resurrection. For this man who was practically dead as he lived among the dead. So the mission of God calls us not to hold on to the holy and hoard it for ourselves. To keep it clean and and never, never put it in situations where we're worried it might be broken or shattered. But instead, the, the mission that God calls us to is to put the holy into action by being vehicles of restoration. 
by being vehicles of restoration. And you don't need to become a pastor. I think I've had some experience with some younger folks who they come to faith in God. And so their first thought is, this is awesome. This is great. And they're right. I guess I have to become a pastor now. No. Trust me. It's great. And it's terrible. You, it's mostly great. But you, not everyone is called to be a pastor. Not everyone is called to that. Just be a pastor where you are. You don't have to take on the vocation of pastor. Be a pastor where you are. God, what did Jesus tell this man? No, you're not, you're not coming with us. But go. Go back to your community and tell them everything that God has done for you. And that's the call for each and every one of us as God calls us to be vehicles of restoration and redemption. Go and tell everyone how much God has done for you. Go and show how much God has done for you. And of course, it's not just about other people, is it? We also have to recognize that sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's us. Who are living, living in separation from God and community. But we're also reminded this morning that Jesus didn't hold back. Jesus didn't say, nope, this is, this is an impure, unclean place. Jesus didn't see this man who came towards him and retreat and say, no, no, he's too far gone. He, too much death upon him. No, Jesus went right in. Right in. And brought about restoration. And so for those who think, I'm, I'm too bad. I, I, I'm too unclean. I'm too unholy. I'm too unlike God. Jesus comes to you. And not just comes, willingly comes. And brings about restoration. He wants to come to you and restore you to God. And restore you back into community. And out of God's great love, God calls us to participate in the recreation of the world. I, I think we have small imaginations. I, I do. I do. And we think, that it, one, that it's just about us. God doesn't save us for us. Uh, he's glad to save us and redeem us and restore us. But God does that work so that we can be about the, the, the work of redemption and recreation of all of the world. Of all of the world. Jesus is showing us that again and again. And a gentleman by the name of David Garland says, the, the demoniac, that's the man who was possessed by the legion of demons, the demoniac, his howling night and day, reveals him to be a microcosm of the whole of creation, inarticulately groaning for redemption. The world is groaning for new creation. The Apostle Paul tells us that. It's groaning for redemption. And we get to be midwives who usher in this new, new life. And, and I, I've never seen a baby born. But there, you know, there's something about new life. It is messy. And it is hard. I, I'll never experience that. But it's hard. And it's painful. And there's screams. And sometimes anger. And it's, it's this... We think about babies and new life, and we're like, oh, it's so cute. But the process to get there is rough. It's difficult. But on the other end of that 
is this beautiful, beautiful new life. And so Jesus goes into this situation where there is a groaning. I mean, this man is literally groaning for new creation. And Jesus brings about new life. And he calls us to participate as the world is groaning for new creation. As our neighbors, whether they know it or not, are groaning for new creation. Jesus calls us to go and participate with him. And this redemption and this reordering of all of creation, casting out the forces of destruction and chaos and putting things right as they were meant to be in the beginning. When you read, there's two creation stories in the, in the book of Genesis, telling the same story but in a slightly different way. But as you read, it says the Spirit of God hovered over the, the waters. I keep hearing about these waters. Uh, as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, God speaks. And, and he separates the night and the day. And he fills them with, with stars and the moon and the sun. And he blesses them. That's God's reordering, his creation work and his recreation work, separating, filling, and blessing. That kind of sounds like salvation and holiness, doesn't it? God separates you, fills you, and blesses you so that we can participate, God, in this continuing work of separation, filling, and blessing again and again and again. That wasn't in my notes, but it was too good not to say. The holiness of God is not to be held on to so tightly that we squeeze the life out of it. It's to be put on display through love. So that those whose lives are controlled by the forces of chaos and darkness might be birthed into the true family, which Pastor Tanner preached about last week. And will you permit me one more, one more tangent? I promise this is the last one. Again, it's just too good to miss. Last week, Pastor Tanner preached uh, about Jesus being in this home, and he's, he's got people around him, listening to him. And then his, his mother and his brothers, they come, and uh, he is out of his mind. He is out of his mind. We have to go get him. And they, but they stay outside. They don't come inside. They, they stay outside. And then someone says, uh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here to get you. And he says, well, who... Who are my mother and my brothers? These, those around me, are my mother and my brothers. And and, and what Jesus is saying is, there is a new family of God being raised up. And those who will allow themselves to be brought into the inside are are part of the family of God. And and in our our text today, we, we read about a man who is brought back to his right mind. They said, Jesus is out of his mind. And it turns out they were on the outside. And he was, Jesus wanted them to come inside and be part of the family. And now here's this man who was on the outside, out of his mind. And he's restored to his right mind and brought into the family of God. Brought around Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is genius. And how he weaves all of this together to tell us the story of God's redemptive work. Through the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ. Bringing us into true community, restoring us into community, the family of God. The disciples asked, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It is none other than the Holy One of God. Come to redeem us, come to set us free from the destructive forces that so often and so easily ensnare us. This is the Holy One of God putting love 
on display by going to the most unclean of places and the most unclean of situations so that restoration might come about. Who is this? It is Jesus who plunders the stronghold of the enemy so that we might enter the new family of God. This is Jesus, the Holy One of God, who calls us to enter into the new family of God and to go tell everyone, everyone, what Jesus has done for us. This is Jesus who is ushering in the new creation. This is Jesus who's making us new. And this is the very transforming love of God on display. And so my question for you this morning is, are you going to hold on to it? Or are you going to participate in this new creation that God is up to?